Wendy. Hi, Sheila. <laughs> I think we're a go right now. Are you okay? Yeah, um, I am, and you said we're just doing audio? Yes, because um, I I'd love to see you, but uh, Dana only wants audio, and uh, the system that I got only records um, audio. She had other systems in place, but they all required uh, a U.S. landline, and remember, uh -huh. I'm, ba I'm based in Panama, so it was very hard yeah. for me. <laughs> So um, I, I hope you understand my accent. I do. Okay. Yeah, no, it's actually, you speak wonderful English. Uh, okay. So no problems there. Okay, if you, if you don't understand anything, you let me know. But okay. you, you still do have the questions that I sent you, so that, that should help. Um, first of all, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, okay, so let's start with the basics. So what is Omeka? Is that the way you pronounce it? It is, mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, well, Omeka is a is actually a Swahili word that means to display or lay out wares, to speak out, to spread out, to unpack. And so the Omeka team, uh, we chose this name because we felt it signifies the practices that Omeka helps its users to do with their digital content through building digital projects for online communities. Um, and so Omeka is an open source web publishing software platform, and it's best for sharing digital collections and creating online exhibits. Um, the, we first built it, um, like it officially became known as Omeka in 2007 as a project of the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media at uh, George Mason. Okay, uh, and how? why did you spend so much time on crowdsourcing history? Where was uh, the hook for you? Yeah, well, so I, um, I identify as a public historian, as I'm sure you do uh, as well. Um, and so I've always seen that the work that I do, um, you know, whether it was in museums or, um, you know, at George Mason as a digital historian, to help individuals and communities to be active participants in defining and shaping their own histories. And so one approach is through, um, you know, encouraging and making uh, pathways, whether it's digital infrastructure pathways or just, you know, through um, other kinds of outreach to um, help in creating more inclusive histories, mm -hmm. which extends to collections help diversify the historical record um, and as you know the what we have in our state collections and in our um, private collections you know reflect um, real privilege and and they're um, you know representative of colonial imperial histories and and they're not necessarily representative of um, of all of the sort of the voices and the stories that um, that we need to tell about you know about our our local our our state our national histories. So this is sort of one one means, not the only way, but but one way. So we, of the many many projects you have developed, what do you think was the most successful one? If you had to choose well, one, I know it's hard, but. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, assume you mean of the Crowd. sort of online collecting project? Yes. Yeah, so I would say that the Hurricane Digital Memory Bank 
um, that I worked on starting in 2005 um, is, is something that I'm very proud of. And it's something that uh, we at the, at the Center for History and the Media worked very closely with colleagues at the University of New Orleans. And we launched it pretty soon after um, Hurricanes Katrina and Rita had um, hit the Gulf Coast of the United States. Um, and sort of, you know, New Orleans was particularly affected, but so were a lot of other communities um, along the Gulf Coast. And there were also a number of, of other issues there of, of who those populations were and um, concern that their stories wouldn't be documented and that their struggles would be overlooked. Um, and it was also a time when, you know, there we're thinking, you know, now it's 13 years ago, um, but even then, how still new it seemed to be able to to use your cam use a camera on a on a smartphone or, you know, be able to you know send uh, text messages to your friends to sort of let them know that you're okay and and a, a bunch of things that were being created digitally. Some a lot of people were were moving. Um, they had to leave the area for months. Uh, and months, some have never returned to mm -hmm. their homes, um, well, well, others did, and so there was just seemed like there was a big story to um, that there would be multiple stories to tell, and that we wanted to be part of collecting and saving those stories, and that we thought that doing it digitally um, would be the best way, given um, how spread out um, and and how people were affected in such different ways following the hurricanes. Um, and, you know, we also did, in addition to creating this um, the website that had an online form where um, anyone could share a story or upload a photo or, a, you know, a video or a, a recording, um, we also had a phone number that we ran through Skype. And we had, you know, a voicemail. So we also passed out um, cards in addition with you know to the URL of the website we also had a phone number and that was for folks who didn't have an internet connection or just didn't feel comfortable um, you know using a computer um, or using their mobiles just for communicate to us and, and and wanted to talk and so we tried to create multiple strategies um, and then we incorporated it all into the same into the same project in the same collections. That also takes us to the question um, that I had a further <laughs> that you talked about supplementing digital outreach with analog ideas and legacy media to promote website traffic. Is that still true today? Or what do you think about that particular? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I think it's definitely still really important. Um, obviously, it's going to depend on who who your community is, you know, and who you're working with, and, and sort of where they are and where they're most comfortable. Um, but you know, I think developing relationships and sort of you know showing you know, especially if you're not a member of a, of a particular community that you're working with, you know, being able to to show you have some skin in the game and that you're um, you know, committed and are sort of working and, and getting to know people 
um, not just about this project, but about other things. And I think, I, I do really think that, um, you know, that, that analog relationships are, are just as important. Not only the relationships, but also the medium in which you communicate the message and how you also collect information. Would that still be true today? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, again, it really is going to depend on um, on who those communities are and, and what they need and where they're going to find out about these kinds of projects. You know, something that might, say, um, appeal to, um, you know, an older generation, um, they may not want, you know, like they may not see something uh you know, on Twitter or on Instagram, or, um, you know, they may appreciate getting a postcard or a bookmark or something. And maybe they work with a, you know, their grandchildren to, to, you know, to, to compose something or to, um, like, Oh, let's, um, you know, photograph this, uh, grandpa and we can upload it to this website. Um, you know, I think it, it really depends on, on who and where you are. Um, but all of those kinds of strategies, I think, should be considered in sort of a more holistic way. It's, it's really difficult to just only do online stuff unless your community is, is very um, focused in one particular place. Okay, uh, another thing that, another issue that I have here in Panama, um, I've tried to do a lot of research in terms of uh, our Panamanian uh, own own culture and context, and uh, most people here reach uh, the internet using their mobile phones. Okay. Yeah. So, how user friendly or feasible is to design and use a mobile platform to upload content for a digital archive? Is it expensive? Do I have to do a lot of uh, IT arrangements, or what do you think? Yeah, another really good question, and um, so it. Now, I would say, like, is, you know, it's, it's very easy and inexpensive to um, create um, a collecting site that works well um, and is accessible from mobile browsers. Um, most mobile web browsers allow um, for the user to access their own files or to, you know, fill out a form. Mm -hmm. Um, that's kind of, a, you know, it also adjusts to their screen size and, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, for example, you can upload to an Omeka site using the, you know, with the contribution uh, plugin is installed and, um, you know, and then say I come to your site and I click on the share or, you know, contribute something. And it'll be a form that'll come up, and I can fill in that information from my phone. I could upload, a, you know, some photos or you know something that I have there that I might want to share as well, and can submit it. Um, and it's easy. You don't, you know, then no one has to download anything because because mm -hmm. that you want to prevent because no one, you know, you, people don't have storage on their phones or they don't necessarily have um, bandwidth. To download a lot of content so um, so I mean you can certainly set something up that's not resource intensive that would allow for um, your users in Panama to you know to access it through their phones 
definitely. Okay, but I would do. Can I do it myself with no IT knowledge using Omeka, or I need a specialized person that does that? Uh, because I was reading in the Washington app, you had a special design made. Uh, and I got concerned about that and I said, well, I have no money for this project. I have to do it uh, with my, with nothing, with very few resources. So I was wondering yeah. if, um, about that particular part. Yeah. Well, so, right. So there are, um, if you wanted to use Omeka, there are, um, there is, there's certainly a, a free version. The contribution form doesn't come with the free version there's sort of a there is some sort of a um a subscription model for a hosted version um but you can also get web hosting through um there's a, a company that is came from a university mm -hmm. so it um and they have very inexpensive web hosting and it's called reclaim reclaim hosting And you could set up one site through them and do a one-click install of Omeka. And they have a lot of instructions. I mean, you would have to spend a little bit of time yourself okay. um, to, to learn, um, you know, to so follow some of the, uh, of the documentation. But um, you would be able to do that with very little um, tech support. I mean, the, there is support that comes with The reclaim hosting and I must say that their um, staff there which is very small is very responsive okay. and they're they're very good um, now I mean you could also do something if are, are you looking to to just collect or are you looking just to identify individuals to then maybe interview um, because you could also do something very simply with a Google form mm-hmm Um, and then that could, could provide you with some contacts and you could follow up from there to, um, you know, say, um, do some interviews, which I know is something that you're considering as well, is trying to identify individuals to, you know, to do some oral histories. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, I mean, that would be super simple and easy. Um, and that would sort of help help you in, in one, you know, in one respect. I wanted um, to do both because yeah. most of the people that, that survived, um, there were 17 and 16, 15 when this happened. This was a student-led movement, a high school student-led movement, uh, sort of like your Parkland uh, situation. Yeah. Uh, they're right now from 70 to 80 years old, and I've seen some of them work with computers, and they're not very literate. So uh, I might want to provide for both venues. That's why I'm so interested in the analog part too and how yeah. to reach them and also how to mediate uh, their oral history. Plus, I want the, his, the, the site to be a repository for all the information that I have gathered as a curator. Because as I explained, most of our history is not here in Panama. It resides in the United States in your archives. And uh, we kind of need to connect or reclaim it in a way that we yeah. can use it as part of our history because our narrative here in Panama has been very one-sided and uh, we need a, a more balanced act. After 50 years, I think we're, we're grown up enough to, to do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. no, it, I think that's a great, that's wonderful. Yes, yes. 
Yeah, it's almost like a repatriation project. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. But I'm not taking anything away. I'm just uh, sharing it. <laughs> okay, so um, since this 9th of January incident is a very touchy uh, subject here in Panama, um, I I'm dealing with the, the debate that this might generate. Um, I really want to use folksonomies, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it here. Uh, because uh, um, I, although I believe in them wholly and completely, I don't think the people that make decisions will fall for them. So um, are there any counter arguments I could use to defend this? Or should I just forget it or and create a set of tags and use those? Uh, you're taking the matter. Yeah, well, so I um, you know, I've got to say that that my view on this is, has definitely changed over time. <laughs> um, and I think it's more that as I hear some real concerns, um, you know, there certainly is the perspective, say, like the official state perspective of we want to control this narrative. But you also have individuals, um, you know, who and, you know, thinking of these students who are now now grown up, mm -hmm. who, who may want to tell their story and they want to be able to describe what they do and don't want to have their words mischaracterized characterized by others as well. Um, and so, you know, I think it's possible to invite individuals to tag their own items so they control the way that, um, like they control their viewpoint and the way that their stories are categorized. Um, but you don't have to ask others or allow for others to do that because then that's sort of slapping opinion on someone else. Mm -hmm. You know, particularly if it's a personal contribution. So I think in, that could be a middle ground. Okay, and the system allows for that to happen? I mean, at least um, Omega? So, let's see. Um, I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> it has, it, it continues to change. Yes. And I am now no longer working on the project. Yes. And so I'm trying to remember if individuals through the contribution form are able to add tags. And honestly, I can't remember. Um, That's okay. This is something that the, um, that the online forums for Omeka, that's okay. a great question to ask. Okay. Um, because as I said, we used to have that capability but then it just wasn't used very often so I think that was it sort of it, it can be added through some a little bit of custom coding but I don't think it comes out of the box that way anymore okay yeah. um, but how well I am leaning towards maybe have 40 50 tags and let people use those um, how about tagging themselves in the pictures or tagging other people in the pictures? Would the system have that capability? Um, well, not in the tagging, not in the same kind of way that you'd like Facebook tagging. Exactly. Tag. Uh -huh. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. Okay. Um, there is a, a way to identify individuals in like a caption or in the description of, of a photo, but it, it does not work. Yeah, it doesn't work in the same way where you can like click on a click on somebody's face and and add their name. Okay. 
And that's important to know because uh, t talking yeah. to the survivors, one of the things that they tell me is that you see a lot of people in those pictures and we haven't been able to know who they are. And uh, this project might, might help um, get their, their faces with a name, I guess. That's a way to say it. So um, um, I know that most contributors do not provide a lot of data. And of course, they don't don't even understand what metadata standards are. <laughs> and the Dublin Core, I didn't know what the Dublin Core was. Um, so I'm concerned that this might lead to a lack of, of interoperability. Um, how do you how do you manage that? Yeah, uh, another really good question. Um, well, so I think what one of the tricks is to not let the sort of that the Dublin core structure and all those empty fields that you that you see when you first add an item from the administrative side of, of Omeka to um, to scare or be too visible on the on the public side on the front end. So when you're configuring the contribution form, you know you create a prompt, and the answer to that is mapped to. Dublin Core metadata. Okay. So, um, and you decide which fields are going to be filled in. Okay. You know, are, are part of the form. And so it's in that way that um, allows for that data, because it's built on Dublin Core, um, it, it still will be interoperable, even if there are, you know, blanks, even if there are empty fields, that's, that's okay. Um, the, the record that's created or the item will still be recognized um, as, um, you know, as a digital thing, and it can be sort of moved from Omeka to another system, uh, you know, when you're ready to do that. So, um, so I think that it's the, the infrastructure that's kind of baked in mm -hmm. that allows for the interoperability, but the sort of front part of it doesn't necessarily have to um, speak the same language. You know what I mean? Like you can sort of change what the labels are on the front end um, to make it a little um, more user friendly. Okay, that's that's good to know because I was yeah, worried yeah. about that one. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, 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 it's totally right. And you're like, well, this sounds like, you know, an archivist or a library would care about this, but, or a librarian, but, you know, not necessarily, um, you know. The public, the users. The public, yeah. yeah. So how do you deal with bots and spam besides using reCAPTCHA, which I've seen in all of your sites? Do I have to worry too much about that, or what's your um, take? Yeah, so not too much. I mean, I think reCAPTCHA is an important uh, component, um, and you know, all of the anything that comes in through the form is not public, so you don't have to worry about things automatically getting um, added and, and viewable on the you know the public side of your website, mm -hmm. um, and. Usually, yeah, the, the reCAPTCHA stuff sort of helps with the bots. Um, and then 
there there are very few kind of spam. Like very few people come to like be destructive. Okay. So for the most part, you're gonna be in a you know in kind of a better place with um, with recapture on in terms of any you know things that are uh, sites that are like they're crawling for for forms, and I think that 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 should do it. You know, I'm afraid because of the uh, powers to be, the higher ups always have this uh, paranoia about about that situation. Uh, I'm on, more concerned about comments, um, more than bots, for example, yeah. and spam. Well, I think you can explain to them that you have control over those, and something that may come in, mm -hmm. it does not have to be marked public. You know, everything sort of comes in. And you can see it when you're logged in, mm -hmm. but nobody else can see it. And so if something comes in that is, you know, derogatory, that's, you know, racist, that's, mm -hmm. you know, uh, angry and, you know, aggressive, you don't have to accept that. You know, that's something that you can, um, you know, you don't have to make it public. You can decide whether or not you want to delete it or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, that would be a decision you'd want to make. You know, as a team, mm -hmm. um, we often on our projects, our online collecting projects, didn't delete things. We just wouldn't make them public. Um, and most of that was just also to keep an accounting of how, you know, for the same reason, like, well, how many crazy comments are we going to get on this? Yes. <laughs> and, and so by saving them, you can sort of account for them and say, like, really, there aren't that many, you know, that and that helps. That helps too, because then you can, as you're talking to and, and continuing to justify the work that you're doing, you can say like, look, we've got, you know, 200 wonderful contributions and zero, <laughs> you know, uh, zero crazy comments, or we only have one, and okay. we've been, you know, open for a year, so that's, that, that can help too. Okay, uh, and most of your sites you have been involved make it clear that contributors keep their IP rights, and it seems to be important to here in Panama. So how do you enforce that those submissions are not used for any public purpose? Because I think it's impossible, but uh, how do you do it? Right, well, so I think that there are um, there's sort of two, a, a couple of different things. So um, we have gotten requests um, from individuals, uh, journalists, or documentary filmmakers who um, contact the project via email and then ask how they can get in touch mm -hmm. with the contributors mm -hmm. to get their permission. Okay. So, um, you know, and then we have done that where we, read, we email the person who contributed and then ask if they would like to talk to this person. Okay. You know, and then if they don't, we don't, you know, so we don't just forward um, the email or we might forward the email to the contributor and say, this person's interested, you know, please get in touch with them. Okay. You know, that kind of thing. Um, but um, the contributors also have an option of whether or not they want what they have contributed to have it published on the website or not. Oh, okay. So that's That's kind of one of those other options. So there are some uh, individuals who 
write something or upload something and say they they don't want it published publicly on the website. They want it to be part of the record. They want it available for, for researchers who have access, you okay. know, or sort of approved permissions to, you know, to look at the collections, but don't feel that they want it publicly on the web. Um, and so with all of those kind of options and protections, I would say that, you know, I and, and our project teams also support principles of fair use of any content that's published online, that it's okay to um, sort of use it for educational purposes, non-commercial purposes, but not for things like publishing an image in a magazine or using it in an exhibit. I mean, we want all of those things, the contributors to be, uh, to agree to that. Um, now, Having said all of that, mm-hmm. how do we check? We don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, fair use helps. Honest, fair use helps in the states, but it, we here in Panama we don't have uh, fair use fair laws, use. Yeah, so it's complicated here. Yeah. Um, so I was just wondering if there was a way, but what you said is it makes perfect sense to me. Um, yeah. Now the next question is very important for me: the crawling through the internet to find resources for this particular theme because everything seems to be all over the place uh, and every week I find a new resource somewhere uh, that I never expected to find so is there anything in the system or an automatic collecting tool that helps us gather and born digital materials? Um, I wish I could say yes. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. It really isn't. I mean There are some ways to scrape particular websites, but you have to know where you have to to know where you're looking. Um, but there are, are some web scraping tools called like WebScraper.io, which is um, it's start it's mostly a free service, but I think there's a limit to what you can scrape. Um, and then, you know, there are some ways um, using like the Python programming language and some of their associated libraries to um, scrape data from web pages. Um, you know, and again, with some programming skills, if there are application programming interfaces. Um, or RSS feeds of content, like from online collections, those can be can be more, uh, excuse me, more easily harvested in that mm-hmm. way. But there isn't a good way uh, to automate that um, with like one online tool. It's it it's just a. Uh, Well, I I had to ask to see if there was something new, um, because I I do think that uh, one of the things that that my boss was thinking was, uh, okay, let's do this archive and just leave it like that. I said, no, 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 you need to mediate, you need to answer people, and you need to crawl, because things pop out all the time. Um, So that is uh, one thing that I'll have to tell him. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like, you can probably identify through a bit of, you know, some some heavy searching, identify places that have 
related artifacts or, mm-hmm. or collections. Mm-hmm. From that point, whether or not you can scrape is going to depend on how the websites are set up and um, the permissions you know. they give me and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, so let's talk about fundraising because it's important for the site, although we do not have a very good culture of philanthropy here in Panama. So I didn't see any plugin when I saw Omeka. I, I might have n- not seen it. Was this ever discussed? Oh, because I'm very concerned about long-term economic sustainability. Uh, yeah, of course, of course. And I think, you know, that, that's a... Especially to pay the mediator in the future, not only the development yeah. of the way of the website oh yeah definitely um so um there isn't but it's very easy to um insert uh you know like a badge or connect link to another platform that does that kind of work okay um yeah we did at different points kind of talked about um you know e-commerce uh, you know, th- that, that sort of broadly falls into e-commerce, yes. um, you know, ways of accepting money <laughs> Yes. and, uh, you know, I'm processing it. And it was just something that we felt we weren't well equipped to do that other services handle this stuff much better than we do or that we could ever do. And so, um, you know, sometimes you just make decisions and you say, look, like we'll focus on the stuff that we're better at. And we'll let the other systems that know how to handle this kind of work do it. And so I do know, um, you know, projects that have links to, you know, out to PayPal uh, for donations or, you know, to like um, GoFundMe or, you know, or other kinds of fundraising. Crowdfunding um, places. Crowdfunding sites, yeah. If you if you have one or two that I can look at, because uh, I had to do peer review sites for the project, but I haven't been able to find anyone that used Tomeka and had a fundraising tool yet. Uh, not that I've had a lot of time to do it, but uh, I'm very interested to see uh, at least one example. Mm, okay. Um... If you know, I am not. Yeah, um, I'll think. I'll, I'll think about it and see what um, see what I can find. Okay. How about designing an Omega site in Spanish? Yes, very easily. You can set the base language. Um, in there's a configuration file. Um, when you set up Omega, and you can say set the base language, so that then everything is automatically translated into and also into the kind of Spanish you want. I believe we've got a, a couple of different mm. dialects of Spanish available. Mm. Um, you know, like, of course, the, <laughs> the Spaniards. Yeah, Castilian. very different from ours in Latin America. <laughs> <laughs> but then I believe, you know, there's I pretty sure that there's Mexican and I'm not sure what other versions, but we have over 50 languages that Omeka has been translated into sort of uh, languages and dialects. That that's a question that um, it's a related question. This archive, what my hope is that it's fed with the American perspective, the U S perspective, and also the Panamanian perspective. So that people would be able to change the language from the side using um, a, a click or a tab or I had to build okay. the whole site in Spanish and then hope the Google Translate does the work. That, yeah. 
so um and i don't want to write everything in spanish and everything in english in the same page because i think it's clunky yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah so so that is not um yeah automatic translation mm -hmm. is not available okay um i think yeah it's it is clunky it anything that's automated with different languages is going to be clunky but i could do um, it in spanish and then have people use google translate to translate yeah. okay that's right yes yeah. start it's it's a spanish site so it's you know it it you sh that should be its first language okay for sure yep so uh, just getting to the end what are the pros and cons of using commercial oral history projects uh, like pass it on for example vis-a-vis -vis an open source one like omeka so I'm I'm not familiar or with any them. other there are yeah, others but um you know I think so right so the so the advantages of using something like that is that it's easy to sign up and usually you know the the interface user interface it's is prettier <laughs> and it's prettier that's mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. that's right um but on the other hand um, you have very little control over um over the data um you usually have fewer options and there are ethics that you need to consider about the data collection and the management hmm. um and pass it on might fold tomorrow mm -hmm. and then you know what would happen like if that was the only place where or um, oral histories were saved, yeah. you know, then then what would you do? Um, I think that's that's always the challenge. And, and I'm not saying that that is the case with Pass It On, because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not familiar no, with it. No, just uh, in general, just comparing any, pears and apples. That's, yeah, exactly. Any commercial entity like that. And I, you know, there there's definitely some history there. I mean, we've all seen um you know applications or or tools even from say google mm -hmm. that you like and use and then they announce that it's going away because you know it's not making them enough money or you know um things that uh, you know little independent companies that that are doing something fun and then they get bought by a bigger one and the bigger company shuts down this one mm -hmm. and so those are the kinds of things um you know, and I think you always have to be worried that whatever data is collected and hosted by them could get sold. That's and right. So, so those are those are just you know things to consider. So, um, data can be exported from Omeka uh, to a new system in the future. You know, in terms of rapidly advancing technology. Uh, yes, you can always any data that goes into Omeka can be moved out. Okay. So, it, so you can take it with you. You can, you know, move it to, let's say there is a system that you want to use at, at the, um, uh, you know, at the museum or, or, or with, a, you know, at a, a, a national digital archive, mm -hmm. it could be migrated there. Okay, that's good to know. Um, so tell me what was your biggest failure mm. and then we'll finish with a success. Yeah, gosh, biggest failure. Um... I mean, there have been, a, I certainly have, most of my biggest failures, I would say, relate to collaborations. Mm. 
you know, with people. <laughs> and um, I think always those are the, the most challenging aspects of the work that we do. Um, and it was, it was earlier in my career and I was managing a project and we were working with, um, you know, a, a larger group and I, I don't really want to say too much about it, but, um, uh, because the collaboration ended up failing. Mm. Um, but you know, we were building a project and collaborating with them and everybody thought they were on the same page until one moment we weren't and things did not go particularly well from there. And so that's a project that I remember spending a lot of time on that never saw the light of day because the, the collaboration um, folded. So it's, it was, was not the tech, it was the people. That's yeah. right. And, you know, th that is that is evergreen. That is always the case is most of the time there are technical solutions to to any given problem but it's always people <laughs> you know people at institutions it's interpersonal relationships um, you know whether it's to collaborate or it's to get approval or it's about um, you know what what the implications of, of building this project and having you know you run it you know, what are the implications for the institution and the structures? So there are all kinds of things like that that are that generally are the root um, of a failure. Okay. Of, you know, these kind of projects. And I'm sure I'm sure your um, your classmates and, you know, and even Dana can attest to that, too. Me, too. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was a journalist for many years and I'm 48. I'm not that young. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I've seen my share of problems derived to precisely that what you described, so I can relate. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> so <you have>. yeah. <laughs> the biggest success besides the the hurricane project that you spoke about. Yeah. Um, you well, you know, another project that I did, I mean, I've got to say, I, I'm really proud of Omeka. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, was on the, the original team until just this summer. And so it's, um, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a coder, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a programmer. Um, I know, knew a bit about web design and sort of user experience and, and that's where, you know, where I contributed most as, um, you know, advocating for users and creating documentation and mm -hmm. forums and outreach, you know, and, and, and those kinds of interesting, um, I, I saw as interesting problems and, um, You know, it's amazing to me to see how widely adopted this software is. Mm -hmm. And and it's now just, it, it used to be just one thing. And now it sort of has multiple iterations of it. Um, and that's really amazing. Um, and so I that's a, a pretty good success. <laughs> you know, it undergirds a lot of... Um, a lot of work internationally mm -hmm. and um i think that's just that's really uh, you know i mean i'm i'm still amazed at you know at how well and how amazing the team was and, and continues to be well i'm, I'm glad that it you, we have that option because uh i've been struggling with building an archive in many other projects i've led in the past and uh, I was never able to find something that we could actually afford. 
yeah. or somebody that no with no IT background could develop like me. Um, I'm a historian. I'm a content specialist. I have my IT background is very <laughs> limited, and okay. with this site, uh, we can do wonders here. Um, so hopefully uh, it will be accepted uh, as part of the whole museum project that we're developing. Um, I'm in the convincing mode right now because okay. I really want the archive to live uh, more farther than my hard drive or the hard drive from the museum. Um, yes. So let's let's hope for the best. I really want to yeah. thank you for your time. <laughs> Good luck with this. I really, you know... <laughs> all that you're doing it's um that's a it's a hard thing but very worthwhile i am very happy i'm involved with this project very happy i took this class to oh, to good. help or, to help organize my thoughts and really happy that dana connected me with you i appreciate your time thank you very much you're welcome well let me know how things go okay? i will i will thank you thanks so much have a good day thanks bye-bye